Uh, good morning, Cornerstone. Uh, my name is Michael Risk. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we are doing a once-off sermon looking at 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 to 28. Uh, please have your Bibles open as we look at today's passage together. That's from 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 to 28. Uh, just prior to the Easter weekend, I was scrolling through Facebook. And I stumbled across a post that started talking about a man who was struggling, who's been attending meeting after meeting, most of which he doesn't understand. He's tired. He's working an insane amount of hours, early mornings to late evenings. And while he would love to spend this Easter long weekend with his wife, uh, with his children, uh, it was predicted that he would have to use this weekend working. Uh, this Facebook post was a plea uh, to think about this man during this long weekend and to pray for him. I imagine when Scott Morrison became Australia's Prime Minister in August 2018, uh, he would have never dreamed that he would have to lead this nation through a global pandemic. And being a once in a hundred year phenomenon, uh, his education, uh, his training, uh, his experiences would not have prepared him for something like this. As a result, he has had to lean on specialists and their wisdom and their advice on how we as Australians should move forward. Uh, this global pandemic has definitely turned the world on its head. Uh, many of us don't know how long it will last and what will happen in the next few weeks or even months. Uh, will there be another outbreak? Will the curve flatten? Will restrictions reduce? I still remember that first week, very vividly, when all these changes started happening and restrictions were being placed here on us, on Australians. I remember both Campbell and I sitting in his office and thinking, what is the next step forward for us as a church? And once we made a decision, the government then would place further restrictions on us. On Monday the 16th of March, a radical decision was made to no longer have morning tea after the service. That we would no longer have morning tea for the foreseeable future. But what happened? Well, that Sunday we actually found ourselves meeting together from our living rooms, being connected through the internet. And this is a hard time for all of us. And for many of us, it'll be a time when our faith will be tested, as jobs will be lost, as people we know will fall ill, and some that we know and love may even die because of this terrible virus. And the question is, uh, which way do we turn? Where do we find answers? Uh, do we find it in our government? 
Uh, do we find it in specialists? Uh, where should we place our hope? Which way is the direction forward? Uh, seeking wisdom, uh, seeking advice from others, it's something that we all do. It's something that Scott Morrison is doing on a daily basis. And unfortunately, the advice that we get today, or the wisdom that is relevant today, isn't always going to fix tomorrow's problem. A living in a fallen world, uh, we will always be met with difficulties. We will always be met with various trials. Uh, today, it's a global pandemic. Uh, but we have gone through trials before. We have gone through difficulties before. A disappointment at work. A failed relationship. Uh, the loss of a loved one. And we will go through various difficulties, various trials again in the future. So how best do we navigate through life, through the difficulties that will come our way? Uh, whose wisdom should we be listening to? Uh, the problem with advice, uh, the problem with wisdom, is that sometimes it can be very subjective. And what looks good for one party isn't always going to look good for all parties. Uh, let me give an example. Uh, just because a certain diet has worked well for you, uh, doesn't mean it's going to work well for me. Uh, subjective truths can't become objective truths. So we are left to ask, uh, is there such a thing as objective truth? Uh, is there wisdom that is timeless and that we can always rely on? Uh, in our passage today, friends, uh, King Solomon shows us that true objective wisdom only comes from God. And our passage shows us this in the following three points. Uh, point number one is the prostitute's complaint. Uh, point number two is the king's decision. And point number three is the wisdom from God. Uh, but before we look at our first point together, uh, let's first get to know King Solomon. Uh, Solomon is a young king. In chapter 3, verse 7, he describes himself as a little child, uh, perhaps a young adolescent, either a teenager or a young adult, nearing his early 20s. And if we read the first chapters of 1 Kings, uh, we learn that Solomon's reign did not start in the most pleasant of circumstances. In the first two chapters, we learn that Adonijah, David's eldest son, has set himself up as king, a decision approved by David's other sons, royal officials, and other important people. However, this reign was not to last. We read that while they were celebrating, that David, along with Nathan the prophet, Zadok the priest, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, had made Solomon king over Israel. You can imagine that such an ascension to the throne would not have earned goodwill with the nation of Israel. The elders of Judah were not consulted. The elders of Israel 
were not consulted. And as a result, there would have been tension between the king and the people of Israel. In the mind of most, Solomon was not the king they had expected. Uh, Israel would have been thinking, Solomon is young. Uh, Solomon is inexperienced. How can he lead our nation? How can Solomon administer justice? Uh, with him as king, uh, he will lead us to destruction. And our enemies overwhelm us. Our Solomon would have felt this tension. He would have been feeling, how can I lead this nation? So when God makes him an offer, in chapter 3, verse 5, of anything he wants, he asks for wisdom. He asks for discernment and how to govern the people of God. A Solomon understands that it's only God and his wisdom that can really govern and guide the nation of Israel. It is then in our passage today that we see the request of Solomon being put into action. So friends, having seen the context of Solomon, let's now look at our first point together. Our point number one the prostitutes complaint. Uh, in verses 16 to 22, we are given this scenario. Uh, we have two women, two boys, one dead, one alive. Uh, there is confusion. Uh, there is uncertainty. And the king has to make a decision upon the case before him. And uh, to give his ruling and his judgment. As king of Israel, uh, the most difficult cases came to him, and he would have to give his verdict. And this is no small matter for Solomon. For although he's making a judgment, a call uh, on who gets the child, he has, however, all the eyes of Israel on him. And the people, the nation, are wondering what kind of king do we have before us? How will this king judge? How will this king rule? What kind of king does Israel have? Uh, the problem is that the king has two women before him uh, who were alone in the house. No one else was with them. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, we are told that one witness is not enough to convict another person. Uh, each offense must be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Uh, this is something that's also affirmed in the New Testament, that every offense must be grounded in the testimony of two or three other people. And the king doesn't have this information at his disposal. Uh, there's no one to verify the story of either woman. Uh, it's one woman's word against the other. I think children do this to their parents all the time. Are putting their parents in the most difficult position of sorting out which child is in the wrong and which child is in the right. Uh, let me paint the picture. 
Our dad and mum are doing the dishes. Our kids are happily playing in the other room. And then out of nowhere, a cry for help. A cry for mum and dad. Uh, the tears are streaming down one child's face. And then you realise uh, it's just not one child crying, uh, but it's both. There are inaudible sounds coming from both children as they communicate who started what, who was at fault, each one trying to convince their poor parents that the other one started it and they should be punished. As a, as a parent, how do you decide? I, neither of you were there. All you know is that both children are in tears. Both children are claiming that the other is at fault and that their life has fallen apart. And this is the king's dilemma. He has two women in front of him, both claiming that the living son is theirs. And as we read our passage, we may think that before the king is just a pleasant conversation. And that the first woman speaks and tells the king her story. As such a reading makes us favor this first woman, doesn't it? Thinking to ourselves, she must be in the right. However, this is not a pleasant conversation. In verse 22, we read the second woman is not addressing the king, but the first woman. Friends, what we have here before us is not a pleasant conversation. We have two squabbling children, each trying to talk over the other, each trying to tell the king that the living child is theirs. And the first is trying to tell her story to the king, while the other is saying, no, no, my king, I don't believe her lies. The living one is mine, and the dead one is hers. There is squabble, and there is interjection at every point. How is the king going to solve the problem before him? Well, this brings us to our second point. Point number two, the king's decision. Uh, in verses 23 to 25, the king recounts the story he has heard. And then comes his verdict. Bring me a sword. Uh, every parent knows the difficult scenario of trying to discern which child is in the, is in the right and which child is in the wrong. And parents, instead of um, punishing one child over the other, what do they do? Well, they make the, the decision to punish both children, by declaring that neither of them can play with the toy, that each of them has to go into the corner, this child in that corner, and this child in that corner. And this is what the king does. He says, neither of you will get the boy. And he calls for a sword and for the living child to be cut in two. Uh, did King Solomon just say that the child is going to be cut in two? Oh, what a horrible decision. And no one would have seen this coming. Uh, for the people within the king's court. And they would have been caught off guard, thinking to themselves, this is the wisdom of our king? 
oh no, what have we got ourselves into? And what about the two women? For both of them, they have a desire for this living child. And now that they are told that the child will be cut in two, and the thing is, how was Solomon to decide which woman was the real mother? Uh, the child was no help at this point. It's not like you could put the child in the middle of the room, place either woman on either side of the room, and then ask the child, hey, which mum do you like more? So he does something totally outside the box, and he goes down the path of which woman likes the child more? Which woman loves their son more? Then what happens? Verse 26 and 27 tells us that the announcement of the child's death drives the first woman to say, Stop! I don't kill him! Give the baby to the other woman. And the word baby in Hebrew is a rare word, much rarer than the word child. And one commentator has suggested that the use of the word baby, which in Hebrew is closely associated with the words to give birth, uh, is said by this first woman from a very maternal place. Uh, there is a maternal drive within her to protect this child at all costs. Uh, this first woman is compelled to save her child and not to see him cut in two. So she's driven to say, stop, I don't kill this baby, but give to him, but give him to the other woman. Uh, it is suggested that for this reason, Solomon stops his previous command. Have you been given insight into the case before him? That this first woman is indeed the true mother. A Solomon gives an answer to the women before him, but he also gives an answer to Israel, to the type of king that he is. That he is a king who leads with the wisdom that comes from God. And this brings us to our third point. Point number three, the wisdom from God. Our verse 28 tells us that through this decision, Solomon had shown and demonstrated to Israel that he is a king that they could rely on. Why? Because they saw that he had wisdom from God. And this is precisely what Solomon had asked for. He had said to God, God, I'm not able to lead your people. Only you can do that. And through this court case, through this drama before us, we see that God had indeed answered Solomon's prayer. That God had given wisdom to Solomon, wisdom to lead and govern the nation of Israel. And this would have comforted the people of Israel, knowing that if war occurred, that they had a king that could govern them, that could lead them. He had wisdom that came directly from God. However, this wisdom, this wisdom was not complete. 
of Solomon's wisdom we see throughout his life is lacking. As Solomon chapter 3 verse 7 says that he wants wisdom to be able to govern the people. And in our own passage at verse 28, Israel saw that they had a king who had wisdom to administer justice. However, despite Solomon's wisdom, his heart was not attuned to God. He did not see God completely. He didn't walk in the ways of God or keep his commands. We know that God did not lengthen the days of Solomon. Solomon would have died a young king, a man in his early 50s, maybe late 50s. Yes, God gave Solomon wisdom. And we are told that he had more wisdom than any other man in the East. He had more wisdom than any man in Egypt. Under the reign of Solomon, Israel did not lack. We are told that in Jerusalem, silver was as common as stone. However, the love of women would be Solomon's undoing. Through his many wives, he would follow other gods. He would not follow the commands of God. And as a result, his kingdom would be divided. And through the actions of Solomon and the kings after him, the people of Israel would be led astray time after time after time and after time again. And they eventually would come under God's judgment. What the people of Israel needed was not a king that could make them happy, with silver and gold, but a king that could lead them and direct them to God. A king that was not only wise, but attuned to loving God, attuned to following God, attuned to obeying God. A king that could lead his people to God. Our friends, we have such a king, don't we? We have our King Jesus who has given us exactly that. He has given us wisdom. He has given us his word, his statutes, his instructions, the commands of God. And not only has he given them to us, he has also given us the means to follow them. Jesus has given us new life. The book of Jeremiah foretold what Jesus was going to do. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, it says this, that God would put his law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And Jesus has done that for us, hasn't he? He has put God's law in our minds. He has written it on our hearts. And we are no longer dead in our transgressions, but through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have been given new life. We have been given the means to follow Jesus. And how does the Jesus do this for us? He does this by continuing to intercede for us. He does this by the work of the Holy Spirit. Through Christ, we have, have the wisdom that comes from God, but we also are able to live it out. We're able to apply this wisdom to our lives. Our Prime Minister is seeking wisdom on how best he can overcome this pandemic. But he's also pleading with the nation before him 
pray. He speaks of how his faith helps him as he leads this nation. And he knows that in the midst of trials, our faith may be tested. And the book of James tells us that we will go through various trials, various difficulties, and our faith will be tested, tested in a variety of ways. Having to ask ourselves the question, amidst these trials, will we rely on God? Will we turn to Him during these times of great difficulty? And not just through this global pandemic that's before us, but all hard times that will come our way. Will we seek Him? Will we depend on Him and His strength? Will we allow Christ to do the work He has already started? He has given us new life, and He is continuing to transform our life. Will we allow Christ to continue this work? Will we continue to follow Him and the wisdom that He has given us? We are told in the book of James that if any of us lacks wisdom, we are to seek God and to ask for Seek God and to be able to overcome the trials that are before us. For in God, we find that wisdom, a true wisdom, only lies with Him. And that all other wisdom is actually folly. The good news, friends, is that we have been given wisdom. We have been given wisdom by our King Jesus, who has shown us that we can come to God the source of all wisdom, and how King Jesus has also attuned our hearts to apply that wisdom to our lives. Seek wisdom. Find it in our Lord and Saviour, King Jesus. Amen.